Hello, and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, author and playwright Mark Anthony Rossi. This show explores all forms of creativity for those searching for meaning and a place in the world. To err is human, but so is to love. Now, without further ado, here's your host. Hi, folks, and welcome back to Strength to Be Human. This is your host, Mark Anthony Rossi, poet, playwright, author. This will be episode uh, 117. I'm starting a, a, a new series uh, as well as the other series. So it's interesting, kind of keeps things uh, moving and, and keep things fresh for, for me as much as well as just for you. This one's going to be called uh, Toying with Tangents. And uh, this particular subtopic is going to be horror in writing. So it's going to be fun and interesting. Talk about different, uh, I guess you could say, sub-themes or sub-genres in, in horror. And, and, and run over some of those uh, you know, interesting examples. Now, uh, some of these will be some short fiction, but also some of them will simply be uh, larger books because they become more well-known and they really help frame some of the, the categories that we're going to be talking about, okay? All right. Well, let's dive right into it, okay? Oftentimes, horror, and I don't mean just the stuff we watch on TV and the movies, but just horror and writing in, in, in general, it crosses over three really, three real distinct groups, okay? The first is the psychological horror, okay? That's the horror that, you know, things are happening, but you realize it's happening to the person, you know, through their perceptions. It might not be our reality, but it's their reality. So, therefore, it's it's, it's horrible and, and horror. But it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, somebody from outer space is trying to, you know, mess with them or something. Uh, it, it means that things are happening, uh, you know, to to uh, to mess with their mind and therefore, you know, mess with their reality and alter their life that way. Because you know, in the end, folks, and, and many people will understand this if they deal with any kind of version of mental illness, that if your reality has been changed for whatever reason, you know, and and it's become something that's painful or unbearable. It doesn't matter if other people are not experiencing it. If you are, if it's changing your life and your world, well, then that's, that is a horror. That is a pain. That is something that, at least to you, is real. So, therefore, it is genuine and something that, you know, that needs to be addressed. It's the same thing with with psychological horror in writing. Uh, the next uh, the next subgroup here is uh, the spiritual and exotic. You know, things like, um, you know, exorcisms or, you know, um, various uh, uh, themes in, in, in books that are not psychological there are real things going on uh but they're out of the normal you know perceptions of, of people they're coming from often another dimension or you know another world not necessarily like an alien world but it may be uh, like a spiritual world could even be hell purgatory or something that that's another group right there and then the last one is it's more the allegory the more the allegory monster type group you know like frankenstein or dracula the invisible man you know that sort of thing Something that's a little bit more concrete, but there's other reasons, you know, behind it. I mean, because if you think about, and we'll talk about this more extensively, but we think about Frankenstein's monster, uh, it's not a creature that was created to harm people or, you know, to bring uh, destruction to the world. You know, it's an experiment. It worked, but unfortunately, uh, people took it the wrong way. Okay, and then and that poor creature suffered because of that. All right. 
All right, so let's dive right into the, one of the first ones over here, the, the psychological, okay? Now, this psychological category is going to cover a, a number of things, okay? Because in some instances, okay, it's a person that went from seemingly normal to not normal. And then in other instances, like the first example here, Robert Block's uh, a novel and, of course, uh, made payments with the uh, Hitchcock movie Psycho. This is not necessarily somebody that suddenly decided to kill people in the motel. This is somebody that was probably born with this severe type of serial killer psychosis and, and, and simply grew more and more into it, you know? And it's really one of the first times that the public got to see something with doing serial killers or, 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 or the true, uh, you know, psychological type of uh, uh, killer. You really didn't see too much of that in cinema or even in the book. So Robert Rock really brought that out. Not that that hasn't been going on there. I mean, quite frankly, uh, uh, the, in real life, Jack the Ripper was, was, you know, literally cutting women to pieces, you know, prostitutes, you know, the guts coming out and everything in the 1800s. Okay. So you didn't need this uh, in, in a book. It was happening in real life. So, you know, and there's nothing psychological about his killings, but it was obviously something psychologically wrong with him. And that's really what those type of uh, categories is about. So Robert Block did a great job with that, really introducing that to the public, uh, introducing us to that, a certain horror that you can check yourself into a place. And next thing you know, some seemingly innocent looking weird dude is, is, is a damn psycho killer, you know? Uh, stuffing, a, stuffing his dead mother in the attic and talking to her and killing people. I mean, it's it's creepy, wacky, and and definitely uh, scary, okay. But because it is psychological, you know, it, it, it in many ways it kind of reaches us more than some of the other aspects of horror in writing. Because if you think about it, uh, it, you know, if you're an atheist, I mean, you, you, the Exorcist is probably a lethargical thing to you. It's, you don't really believe it, so how the hell is it going to scare you? Not a big deal, you know. And you don't have to be an atheist and not be impressed with, you know, some weird dude with a square head and bolts in his neck coming to life from electricity or something. Who cares if he's just not interested in that? So, but for somebody that seems normal, literally a, a, a wolf in sheep clothing, somebody that is uh, uh, not appearing to be a maniac, not appearing to be anything other than uh, a sort of a, a, a geeky nerd kind of guy. You know, he's over there stabbing people to death, literally in the shower. Okay, uh, that was a that was a scary scene in that movie and, and in the book too. Um, that's scary beyond anything else because uh, you understand then that that's a horror that uh, can really happen. Uh, you know, you can always say this. You know, there won't be a vampire or there won't be a Frankenstein in real life. And, you know, and it most likely probably be true. Yeah. But uh, you can't say that you're not going to accidentally stumble across, whether it's in the newspaper or in your real life, you know, a serial killer and, and, and cross paths with that sort of thing and, and how scary that can be because you didn't bring it on. And uh, they're doing things that are not even in their control. You know, they're uh, heavily damaged individuals that, are, you know, uh, have gone on to not being uh, checked by, uh, by society and, and, and you know, striking back. So, yeah, that could be really the, the most horrible and the most scary of all, is that type of uh, horror. Now, I liked 
Uh, and we'll go back to the 1800s on this with Edgar Allan Poe. I like to tell tale heart in the black hat. Because, again, there is not really a spiritual element going on over here. This is not the kind of horror that he wrote. In fact, I think he was an atheist anyway. But he's letting you in the mind of somebody who, who's definitely a killer. You know, with the telltale heart, I mean, this is a, a, a killer that's literally um, a guilt-ridden. And, and, you know, pulling up the boards and, you know, finding a dead body underneath the, underneath the house of the neighbor missing. You know, it's crazy. You know, and um, you hear from the voice of the of the narration of, of this of this short fiction, which of course is a masterful work. You know, the uh, the, the the guilt and, and the anguish and, and the torment. Um, this is definitely somebody, not to make light of anything, that probably can never graduate to be a serial killer because they barely can handle making just one killing. So who knows if this is a person that temporarily snapped and then now snapped back to it going, oh, what, what am I done? What is going on? You know, we don't know. All we know is they, they, they murdered and they can't handle the fact that they murdered. So um, they're probably not going to be doing it again because they can't even handle this one. But that's what you seem to learn from that story and the person's you know, mental makeup in it from the narration. Now, the black cat is, is, is curious because, again, no, no magical fantasy spiritual element over here, but it's obvious that this much more unrepentant killer than the other one. You know, you got to give some, I guess, if not sympathy, empathy to the, to the, to the killer in the telltale heart because it is somebody that is expressing remorse in their own wacky way, okay, where the black hat is not. This is somebody that does not care at all. And eventually the cat seems to lead the, you know, the detectives over to where the, where the dead body is. You know, almost like the cat's like, I'm going to get rid of your butt because you're, you're, you're never going to get caught probably. And you're certainly not going to turn yourself in. You're not guilty. You don't even feel guilt. So, but again, it's a psychological type of story, but it has that horror element into it because uh, not normally uh, do, um, you know, animals uh, do this sort of thing. Although you can say that, you know, a dog of maybe an owner that's been murdered by somebody, the dog can, you know, smell the body or try to help somebody locate where it is, could possibly, you know, intervene in its own way. You had a loyalty and, you know, dog instinct or something and maybe lead somebody to the body and help solve a crime or something like that. So I guess that's possible. And I'm not talking about a service dog or a police dog or a window dog or whatever. I'm just talking about a regular dog, you know, could still possibly do that. Cats, on the other hand, I don't know, quite unusual. They're not always the, uh, you know, the most loyal of animals. I don't mean that in a bad way because I like cats, but uh, they have an independent streak in them, and you know they don't think they really can care less. Uh, sometimes, you know, They're like whatever, somebody feed me, leave me alone. So, but I like that. It's definitely a, a real element of psychological horror in that, and and of course uh, he put a little bit of a twisted mystery in that. So that's nice. Um, we'll go on to the novel of The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. Strictly. Uh, Many consider the best horror story ever written, uh, but it's definitely psychological because even though in real life she, uh, you know, didn't care for organized religion, but she still believed in magic and witchcraft and things like that. She kind of believed those things were real and uh, even had spell books in her house and everything. So, I mean, she did her own little research. But this is definitely um, things that are going on in there that, that they're perceiving. And, uh, 
who knows if there's trauma in that family or I think there is in a certain way and things that are, that are happening to them, you know, in, in, in a sort of a group traumatic kind of way. But it's definitely a, a strictly a, a psychological uh, haunting of, of a house and, and an event in there. Not, not, the, not the classic, you know, monsters and green stuff come out of the wall and, you know, you're flushing the, the toilet bowl and it becomes, you know, full of blood or whatever. Something like that. Now, is much more famous for what's considered uh, one of the greatest short story fiction pieces ever written. Short, short fiction pieces, The Lottery. Um, I think when we had a, a show about her, it, it, uh, we had mentioned that uh, it was considered uh, one of the most read short fiction pieces ever. And it's in the top, like, I think 100 things ever written by a human being on Earth. The Lottery, a short fiction story. So we're talking about some real impact over there. That's a very unusual story because I bring it up because it's so important to bring up. But in many ways, it doesn't really seem to fit in any of the categories I have over here. It's not really a monster story. I mean, unless you really want to consider the people in it monsters, you know. And it's definitely not a spiritual story because there's not really any spiritual elements going on over there. You might say that the town is acting like a cult, but... You know, that's that's more metaphorical. It, you really can't really show that in much in the story. And it's definitely not a psychological story. It really isn't because what's happening is really happening. You pull your number, you're getting killed <laughs> by the town. You know, I don't know if they want to consider this population control, birth control, or some kind of freaking control. But um, so it's kind of hard to really find a category for that particular story. I mean, you, you might want to say it's some kind of allegorical story or a monster story, but it's kind of loosely even fitting in there. It's just, it's almost by itself in many ways, but it's so incredible to, um, to think about that story and how, how scary it is. I, and that people find that scary. You go into a town and next, you know, it has this kind of a policy. It's not like they're putting it up on their sign. You know what I mean? <laughs> Welcome to Scooby-Dooville. We might kill you next week. You know, it's not like they're, you know, saying something like that. And, uh, certainly, uh, we've seen, uh, newspaper articles and events in people's lives and even stories uh, beyond the lottery where, you know, people went to a town and, you know, something bad happened to them because the town was, uh, you know, cult-like or the town was uh, religiously nuts or maybe they were just uh, inbred freaks that like to rape and kill people or, you know, maybe they just uh, hate outsiders and, you know, harass the hell out of you or something. All these things really do happen in real life. And uh, so in that way, it's, it's sort of very scary because, you know, you might come off the road with a vehicle having a problem. You're giving it to, you know, Joe Below Mechanic and, you know, you're in Wackyville. So, and not, you know, to any fault of your own. So, but it's one of the stories that I truly love. And it's definitely a, a, a classic horror story. That That is definitely horror. It's just hard to find where that actually fits in. But it, it's still important. It, it really is. Now, the next uh, group of... Uh, horror we're talking about is more of the spiritual exotic the more of the what i consider more of the classic type of horror where um you're pulling in some sort of spiritual dimension or you're playing upon people's religious prejudices or possibly even religious fears you know and i mean religious prejudices only in the sense that you know if you're a christian you're going to believe in demons and angels and hell and all that you know you know if you're another religion you might you might not so whatever pretty much you're believing in it a horror story can tap into some of that. And, and many of the horror stories are 
have that sort of a, a Christian type of bent, you know, in, in them, you know, in some of the more scarier elements, uh, particularly the Exorcist, where um, a, a teenage girl messes with a Ouija board, opens up a portal to hell, and next thing you know, she's getting uh, possessed by a a, a, a demon, and uh, you know, shooting out uh, green vomit and uh, jabbing uh, giant crosses into her, um, you know, other regions while she's uh, cursing uh, worse than a sailor to priests who she's pretty much coming on in a sexual way and I think she's like 12 or something so this is all horrible all perverted all um, sick and uh, of course it was done for the scary effect and also you know to make the story relevant I don't think you know the author who's actually a pretty religious fellow in real life uh, was trying to do anything beyond that but nevertheless uh, I think it was scary in the book I mean the movie really uh, did a fine job of bringing it home on what the heck was going on over there? There was no game, and there was no joke. Uh, so the, the Exorcist, a real classic example of that kind of a horror. But as you, as we talked about before, you know, it has, it has a shelf life if you're just not somebody that really buys into any of that anyway. Because then you don't have that extra element of, wow, this could happen. I mean, not mess with a Ouija board or wow, you know what I mean? You're going around Mesa with some weird occulty things. Who the hell knows what happened? I might have some angel-looking uh, demon with blue eyes trying to beat the hell out of me in the middle of the night with a stick. Who the hell knows? So, if you don't have those sort of beliefs, um, yeah, it, it, it does have a bit of a shelf life. But, you know, people still can find some real scariness. And I think the S's are scared people even if they were atheists. I think it was just that that damn effective, you know? Um, he did, and this is William Peter Blatty, he's the one that wrote it, and ultimately, um, he wind up, um, uh, directing, uh, Exorcist 3, because Exorcist 2 was, like, a horrible piece of junk. Um, Exorcist Seed continued on the story, uh, successfully and make it, made it relevant. But he also, he also wrote a book, um, uh, where... This is like the exorcist version of the positive side about discovering God and how horrible that can be and how, how frightening I experienced that could be, you know. Um, and he, he converted it into a movie which he retitled uh, The Ninth Configuration. If you can never get it. It's, it's one of the most important movies you might ever have watched about something positive and spiritual, but also having a very big scary element in it, trying to tackle some universal uh, questions about the nature of good and evil. And uh, there's a real sense of humor in it. There's some real funny stuff in there. The cast is incredibly fantastic. Stacey Keach playing the astronaut who lost faith and, and uh, get the hell out of the space capsule and had to go into an institution, a mental one. Uh, there's just really some fabulous actors in that in that thing. And you'll recognize a lot of them. And and there's real, really some real good funny moments. But it's a it's a deep movie, and uh, you want to definitely uh, check that out. I remember reading the. I remember reading the book on it too. It's sort of like a companion piece to, to reading after reading The Exorcist, so you kind of get a, a good sense of, of of good and evil. And I like William Peter Blatty because, you know, he didn't sugarcoat anything, and he wasn't playing any games, and he wasn't trying to work on cliches. You can see his research, you can see his heart, you can see the things that he was trying to convey in these books. As much as he was scaring people, he was also trying to get some important lessons about. You know, the safeguards of your own uh, you know, spiritual well-being and, and going to places that you shouldn't go. You know, things can happen that, you know, that will take you over, like, you know, the exorcist. 
So that, that's an incredible, um, I call it considered classic type horror. Okay. Now, Clive Barker, probably one of the greatest horror writers, especially emerged in the 80s with his five books, The Books of Blood, where he wrote a, a series of short stories in each book. You know, they had anywhere between like seven and 12 short stories, and every one of these stories had something about the blood in them. If you remember at all, uh, the horror of the 1980s was was the uh, the substance of blood through AIDS. You know, literally people were being racially discriminated. If you're a Haitian, oh my God, you must have AIDS. Your blood is destroyed, this and that, all kinds of stuff. Blood was all about it, and the blood really was relevant in, in those books. And I think he kind of really brought it home about how important blood was and, and, of course, how scary blood can be. He wrote other books, though. Because most of those books didn't have that much of a spiritual element to it. Most of those, I, I think, were very psychological. There was a few stories that were uh, spiritual, a few. And then there was a couple that were straight horror uh, monster-type stories that would have fit in the other category. But most of those those stories were pretty much psychological or even slight you know, political horror. But um, he wrote a couple of, uh, of books. They all became movies that were very good. And one of them was called Nick Reed. And it's a really excellent movie. It really turns on the head about who is the monster. Uh, Ray Bradbury explained to us in in, uh, in science fiction category, which we'll have a show about that, uh, that uh, you go to Mars and who the hell's the Martian really? You or, or the Martians? Maybe you're the Martian and they're the normal people. Well, that, that's what Clive Barker was talking about at Nightbreed. Maybe you're the bigot and the monster's just normal in their world. So what the hell are you bothering them for? In their world, that's that's, that's normal. You're the, you're the monster if you're going to go on chasing them, being afraid of them, trying to kill them, hating them, causing other people to kill them. So that's really what that talked about, the real nature of, of prejudice and, and, and bigotry and, and of course, uh, um, closed-mindedness about something that's different. That was really, really, really good. Just excellent. If you ever had a chance, it's, it's one of his very best movies. Another one, it, it was from a novella called The Hellbound Heart. It eventually became the Hellraiser movie series, which was incredible. Um, basically, you're, um, you're a greedy freak wanting to get some sexual high from messing with occultic type things. And you, you, you try to solve this box, which is like a, a devil's ruby cube. And once you solve it, you, you know, these creatures from hell come out. Uh, the main one being what they call Pinhead. A guy that walks around with a, a weird, like, um, uh, I guess you could say, like a, a strange kind of square robe, almost samurai-looking thing, uh, with pins all through his face and head, because he's a pain freak, and will cause you pain until you, until you die. And he enjoys doing that. And he has two weirdos that follow him around as they're causing you all kinds of pain. Yeah, pretty Pretty sick. He had a lot, a lot of interesting and funny quotes in that book, in that book, and in, in that uh, movie. Uh, a lot of them are pretty deep and, and have a lot of wisdom in them, uh, believe it or not. And um, it's just nothing to play with. A again, teaching you about going to places that you don't belong, and, and you bring about things that come here that shouldn't be here. You brought them. So that, and, and of course, you'll you'll know a lot of other ones. Um, Stephen King. I'm not a big Stephen King reader or, or advocate, uh, but and many of his horror books don't even really fit a lot of the allegory monster type of things. You know I mean, how the hell you call a, a car trying to kill you a monster? It's kind of hard. So he's got some weird ones, but 
his book, The Pet Cemetery. Well, that that's an excellent horror story. That, that's a classic spiritual one where you have grieving parents um, for the child dying. And, of course, the guilt of them, you know, probably not being around or trying to save the child. And, you know, they hear about some place where you could bury somebody and they can come back. And yeah, they come back as though, but they never come back as your child. It just, and child is in physically the child, but nothing else. And, you know, the consequences for something like that. I mean, you, you you certainly feel in your own heart, you know, why you would want to do that. And that's really the key to that particular book. And I consider it one of his very best books to this day. Uh, because I think he was able to figure out how to really bring in that emotional human element without being corny. Because sometimes Stephen King, especially some of his early books, are, are kind of corny. Uh, this one was not. He really, uh, he really... Uh, Got some scariness in there, and, and really, uh, really made you think as well. And, and that was uh, one of his real successes, I thought. And I think, it, I think he mentioned it was this also one of his more personal books too. So I, I can understand that writing that as a parent, where before his earlier books, I don't even think he was a parent yet. So I think this one uh, was almost like Stephen King sort of maturing in a way, going to a different part of his own life and kind of bringing that out and, and putting that into a, a horror story. So bravo, that's really one of the really one of the great. There's plenty of other ones out there. Don't get me wrong. There's a there's a book, and I, I'm sorry, I, I should have looked up the author's name, but I completely forgot to do that. But I remember it to this day. It's called The Manitou. I just can't remember the author's name, but uh, it's an excellent book. Uh, it's based on the Indian legend that uh, a spiritual uh, creature could live inside your body and your back, and then come out, you know, and, and 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 kill and do things, and then go back into your spine again. I know it's really strange. But it, the book is really, really cool how we did it. Great job. It's cool to have some kind of American type of Indian legend in there. Something because, you know, they got a lot of interesting legends and did it in a modern way that we can all appreciate. So I thought it was a great job. Also, I'll give it two kudos because they didn't really do a whole bunch of Indian stereotypical nonsense. You know what I mean? People now pow dancing and rain dancing and, you know, all this stupid stuff that they, they put in movies that, that sort of uh, make these people so hostile to us. Yeah, you, you call a, a sports team the Redskins, and you wonder why they're pissed off at us. Yeah, thanks. So um, did a good job of not doing that. Took the legend and did some real research seriously. Made a successful book out of it. Um, I don't know if they made a movie out of it. They did. It didn't come out probably good because I, I don't really remember. I, it would be nice if somebody remade that, though, because now with the special effects I have, that would be really, really damn interesting. And, you know, it would be a good way to bring, you know, some of the Indian things for people to learn. But excellent, excellent book. Sorry, I can't remember the um, uh, author's name. But I tell you, if you Google Manitou, it's it not like there's lots of Manitou titles. You'll 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 find it right away, and it is definitely a, a I figure a interesting and a, a probably unknown classic. I mean, unless you're really into horror, you probably don't even know much about it, unfortunately. So go check that out, please. All right. Now, last category is one that we all know from our childhoods, um, from the last hundred years, baby, you know, because some of these stories literally are a hundred years old. No joke. Um, so, uh, I mean, our parents know about these as well as we do. So, and they're the very, the really classic ones. They're the different type ones. That you, and they're scary in a different way, not the same way uh, as, as the spiritual ones. Uh, and, of course, they have the allegory because they're talking about different things, in, you know, uh, in, the, in the classic sense of, you know, Mary Shelley, the, the female a brilliant writer that wrote Frankenstein. And I'll explain to you my pet peeve right now. 
so we get it out of the way because it upsets me. Okay, Frankenstein wasn't the monster, people. Frankenstein was the damn scientist. Remember, Doctor Frankenstein. Okay, so try to keep that in mind, please, and don't annoy me. We never really had a name for the damn Frankenstein. It's Frankenstein's monster. That's all it was. It really didn't have an actual name, or you know, this is my creature and this is the species I created. And blah blah. No. It's a you know a bastardized put together monster. Uh, drilled into life some electricity from the freaking clouds uh, into his castle and into the bolts in his neck. That's what it was. You know, that was the best they can come up with in the 1800s, but it was pretty damn clever. That's for sure. Frankenstein's monster. Okay. Deep book in many ways. She's really telling us about, you know, sometimes the perversions of science, certain things you shouldn't be done, even if you can do it. Not a good idea. What are you doing when you bring this thing to life? What are you really doing? You know? Because you don't have any preparation for this creature, for the for the hatred, the prejudice, and the fear that people are gonna have. You got the whole damn town next to your castle out there with pitchforks wanting to stab everybody to death. Wanting to burn you the hell out. So that's one of the one of the many pitfalls of doing something like this. You don't have any preparation. You put that creature's life, because it's now living, you know, at risk. Not a good idea, first of all. Second of all, you get a big, powerful creature like that, eventually they're going to start whacking people because uh, they got to defend themselves because everybody wants to kill them. So now you're putting other people's lives at risk. Yeah, cool. Thanks for that. Okay? Um, you don't really give us a scientific basis on why the hell you're doing this in the first place, okay? What's the point? It's not like you can use this organs later on to, to put it into other people to help them, but then it, it dies anyway. So, again, what would be the point of any of this? Okay? You know, if you're trying to make a slave army to, you know, for killers for you or something like that, I'm not, you know, promoting that's a good idea. At least it would be some kind of a point versus there's not really any point in the, in, the, in the book of this guy trying to do this thing other than he's trying to do this experiment, messing with nature and having these horrible, you know, aftermath and, and, and of course, effects from it all. So it's definitely an allegory story, no doubt about it, okay? Allegorical all the way. Brings up some really valid points. Way before we were questioning science and technology. So we need to question it all the time to this day. We need to question right now, right now, artificial wombs in Japan. Maybe use that to clone people and then speed up the thing. What would you do that for? Hmm? Again, if you make things living, then you're ripping out the organs and you're really murdering them too. So. There's not really been a lot of thought about all the consequences for these things. So we've got to be really careful with that. You know, messing with genetic uh, alterations of people and, and even in embryos. You know, what's that about? Hmm? You say you're trying to fix diseases. For all we know, you, you could be implanting diseases. For all we know, you could be racially changing people or trying to figure out ways to destroy them. There's a lot of bad things that can be happen with this more than a good thing. So... Those are why we have to question science, because oftentimes the agenda is a lot more shady than we're being told. Now, Dracula is the next one from Bram Stoker, okay? Dracula is a different type of monster, because you could say Frankenstein's monster was a monster, okay? But it was only a monster because it was different than us, and made in a weird way and brought to life when it wasn't alive, okay? But it's not 
something that is evil or wants to be evil. Where Dracula, it, it's an entirely different story, okay? Here's somebody living off the blood of people so it could live forever and going out and doing it more and more and more. I mean, I'm not saying it's Bram Stoker's uh, really his responsibility to explain to me what the hell is the point of these vampires, you know? To keep living forever for what? For what reasons? They can keep, you know, drinking up blood and stabbing us? Making a few more of them or something? It's never really explained in any kind of vampire lore. I don't care if it's him or 20,000 rip-offs already of, of, of Dracula. What the hell is the point of these vampires? What the hell are they doing? Well, I, I just don't ever understand that. What's their life existence? You know, at least you as a human being, you might be able to say certain things. You know, I believe I'll be reincarnated into a, you know, into a daisy or something. Or I believe, uh, you know, I'm going to go to heaven and hang out with Frank Sinatra or something. Or, you know, hell, at least you got some point of an existence or something. Meanwhile, I'm going to do cool things on Earth and raise my kids, blah, blah, blah. All right. But what the hell's the point of a vampire, werewolf, any of these other things? We don't know. But we know now. It's not really explained. But Dracula, unlike Frankenstein, is evil. Knows it's doing evil. Can't control its evil because it needs blood. Even though, ironically, and we've seen this in other Dracula vampire-type shows, some of them were so guilt-ridden over the whole process that they, uh, and we've seen it especially in the Twilight movie series and books, it simply stored the blood. You know, and just drank it and rather than hurting people. He robbed right, blood banks or get it from animals or something and blah, blah, blah. Because they don't want to hurt people. You know, they think killing is wrong. And it is, of course, but though the Dracula and his vampires are not doing that, okay? They just enjoy doing it. Um, the movies, especially some of the older versions of Dracula, made Dracula like almost a, a sexy kind of dude and, and the, the act of what he was doing, especially the women, almost like a, a sex act in itself. Something erotic in it rather than exotic. Um, the book doesn't really point it that way, but you could probably go in that direction if you wanted to. I'm not against it, but again, maybe it's an interesting angle, but it doesn't really explain what the hell these creatures live for other than to torment us. We don't really need that, okay? We got the IRS and, you know, we got our spouses to do that. We don't really need, you know, vampires, okay? But um, evil, that's what it is. No doubt about that, okay? So that's your classic evil monster, okay? Next one, and this is the interesting one, for H.G. Wells, The Invisible Man, and you've, you've, you've seen the movies as well. Good and bad of the of the of the invisible man. Well, is is a classic dweeb, nerd, dork, Poindexter, whatever the hell word you want to use, powerless kind of person that when they figure out how to gain power, and remember when you figure out how to become invisible, you've now gained the power that can go right to your head, and next thing you know, you go from you know the innocent abused person to now the guilty evil abuser. You know. They never go all the way they want to go with the story. But it's not hard to see, you know, that this guy can kill and hurt people. He could probably rape women, never be caught, you know, all that sort of stuff. Rob banks, do whatever, you know. Of course, he's taking his clothes off. He's friggin' naked. So I don't know how much you can really do because, you know, invisible not, you know, if it gets cold out, you know, and, you know, you got parts that, you know, they could fall off. Okay, so you're going to have so much power over there. But nevertheless, there's a, a really good example of the corruption that can be in power 
and how when you're so close to it for too long, it, it, it'll, it'll change you. And that's really what happened with the Invisible Man. So it's a monster story in terms of somebody normal becoming a monster. You know, they have like three different types of angles on this thing. You think about Frankenstein, you think about an undead collection of parts that became a monster. Really wasn't bad. Then you got a, a timeless evil figure, Dracula, that is evil, is a monster, doesn't care, likes being a monster. Got a special little house to sleep, you know, and the daytime thing come out and do some more monster stuff. This guy's got a, like a damn monster condo in the coffin, you know. Then, of course, you got the Invisible Man. You go from a regular, normal individual um, who apparently has some psychological problems from all the type of abuse and all the the powerless that that person feels to now becoming somebody that has an enormous amount of power and unfortunately not using it to help other people like him in the world, but rather disarming other people. And that's sad, but that's sometimes what happens with power, even with that kind of individual. So it's not that unusual. But that's a real that's a real classic story, and it's a really good allegorical one because it does teach you about you know the change, the transition, and, and what power can do. The transition from being visible to invisible. The transition from being the nerd to being now, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a deadly night creature that can't be seen. Horrible, isn't it? But this is what I like about horror in writing is it really lets us go to places that normally we wouldn't be able to go. Because when you talk about some of these things in nonfiction, I don't care uh, how academic you want to be with it, or maybe how entertaining you try to be with it. It, it has a limited you know, value in, in many ways. It has a limited span of what you can write about it before you start making people fall asleep. You know, you don't need a lot of pages to tell somebody that you know, power can corrupt you and give you a few examples. Before it's like, okay, I mean, I'm on page six here. How the hell are you droning on? This is the same stuff. Just you put a different freaking piece of clothing on it. It's the same animal, you know? So that's what's really good about horror is that you can go into many directions, stay entertaining, staying artful, obviously even almost in a fanciful, uh, fanciful type of way. Uh, and still talk about some relevant uh, nonfiction things, but you, you're doing it through horror. So horror really, really helps us to uh, learn a little bit about about the human condition, maybe sometimes the human psyche, certainly about uh, society in general. I mean, how it could be cruel, how sometimes society in its own cruelty, not understanding its own cruelty, can help create some of these monsters and creatures that we're talking about. And I don't mean because it does that by accident that somehow it deserves its fate because it doesn't. You don't deserve to get murdered because you accidentally, you know, tormented somebody, not realizing that your behavior was doing that. It doesn't mean you deserve to be murdered. You maybe deserve to get smacked in the head, but that's not the same thing as, you know, being stabbed 14 times. So Harvard can really bring us in, 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 these, in these different worlds. And I think also it, it makes for some really enduring characters. If you think about it. Uh, you know, you say Dracula, you say Frankenstein, you say the Invisible Man, you know, I mean, you say Pet Cemetery, Lottery, Psycho. These are things that boom, like, you you know what's going on right away. If you have any kind of well-read, you know, personality or any kind of person that's read enough movies, you you know what they're talking about. It's good for good frame of reference and 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 and, and of course good for trivia <laughs> pursuit and and, and trivia uh, you know games at the restaurants, but also it, it, it's a a good way for you to kind of. Uh, 
home uh, home in on, on the thing that you might be wanting to you know, working on yourself and understand that that's been established now and what you can do with it. So horror, uh, not only is it to me endlessly fascinating, I wrote a couple horror pieces myself just because I, you know, I like it that much. Uh, but also, it, it's a really, I, I find it to be a full-fledged a member of, of, of literature, and we need to respect you know, horror and, 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 and many of its, uh, of its masters. All right, folks, this is Mark Anthony Rossi. Until next time, we got some other great episodes coming up. Uh, the next one after this will be episode 118, an interview uh, again with Linda Imbler, uh, learning some of the new things she's doing, some of her thoughts about writing. A uh, very fascinating woman, a, a different interview than we had earlier last year, so I'm happy to do it again in an entirely different way. It, it came out fabulous. I really love it, so we're going to be hearing that in a couple of days. And then after that, we're going to go back to the particular uh, instruments. Uh, that'll be in, in episode uh, number 119, and that'll be uh, Ghosts as Characters. So that'll be really cool. Ghosts as Characters will be uh, interesting as well. All right, folks, this is Mark Anthony Rossi, Strength to be Human. Until next time, God bless. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by purchasing an ebook at Soma Publishing, www.somapublishing.com.